Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome to season two of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now, let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hello there, music nerds and friends and compadres. Thank you for joining me again today for another episode. We've had a great response to the season so far, and I really appreciate you all tuning in and getting in touch as well. Uh, last season, I had a, a couple of interviews with engineers and producers, but engineers who I thought had a cool story to tell. And I'll be doing the same again this year with a couple more. Today's guest is an engineer and producer who has left a massive mark on contemporary acoustic music. Bill Vorndick is his name, and he's been working for decades now in Nashville. And his history is a fascinating one. He started out meeting Chet Atkins way back in the day, and uh, eventually he got a job sort of through Chet, I believe, as Marty Robbins' house engineer. Marty, of course, is one of the great country artists and singers of all time. And Bill worked at his studio here in town and, and made a bunch of records with him. And as well, at the same time, as working on a lot of pop and country music before deciding to shift focus over to acoustic music and bluegrass, which he'd grown up listening to. He hooked up with some incredible artists at a very special time here. Um, Bela Fleck comes to mind, Jerry Douglas. They were just getting going. Sam Bush and all that Mark O'Connor and that whole cast of characters that if you listen to contemporary bluegrass, you know their names all too well. They came to Bill to record almost everything they did in those days. His work with Bela and the Flectones earned him international recognition, not to mention his development of Alison Krauss and spearheading her early recordings to mega stardom levels. Bill is also an incredible technical mind, and he designed a course and, and taught it here on audio engineering at Belmont Uni University. Um, I got to know Bill through my good pal Doug Cox from Vancouver, and um, I got to work with Bill on a few projects since moving here about four years ago. And what struck me about Bill is his incredible, almost scientific mind when it comes to mic placement and acoustic sound, not to mention where to stick little pieces of tape all over your instrument to bring out the best tones. I sat down with Bill at his home studio, which is a term I use very loosely in his case because this place is dripping with music history. It's up in the hills, a few miles out of town from Nashville, and was the home to J.J. Kale. And before that, it was a spot for country artists in the 50s and 60s to come and showcase their music, not to mention to get out of the dry county that Nashville was in and get a drink at the time. The house has a huge warehouse that used to be a, a dance floor and um, a concert venue, basically, and it is just teeming with mojo. 
Anyway, Bill runs his home studio out of that place now. And uh, he also has a, a great series for AES of Nashville, which is the Audio Engineering Society. Please look up their website at aesnashville.org, not .com. That takes you to some weird um, car repair thing, I think. But aesnashville.org. Uh, the series that he puts on is called Legends in the Round. And if you're in Nashville when it's on, there's a few of them every year, you should definitely go. It features panel interviews with legendary producers and engineers, not to mention that it's in Columbia Studio A, which is where they recorded so many classic albums. And it's free, so you should go if you're in town. Look it up, aesnashville.org. Once again, thank you to everybody out there for listening and tuning in and connecting with me and sending me notes and uh, comments on the shows. I do greatly appreciate it. Um, If you would like to head on over to my website at www.stevedawson.ca, you can make comments there, and there's a page there for the podcast. Um, If you feel so inclined to contribute with a donation, you can do that at that page as well, and that's greatly appreciated because that is how we keep this show going. Please also head over to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. It's free, and it helps to get the word out there. All right, now I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor from Vancouver, Canada. They're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage. I gotta say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a Sone Bender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs. Great tones and the best fuzz effects going too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. And now, I bring you my conversation with Bill Vorndick. The first time we tried to do this, I had a uh, root canal happen that day. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't have been able to talk very well. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me up here. This is cool to come. I usually do these at, at my place, but coming up here means a lot actually because I'm really interested in the history of recording here in Nashville and and I know that this place in particular has some of that history tied to it and you've lived here a long time but maybe could you tell me a little bit about this house and this building itself and just give me some of the background. It was built about 1954 Mm -hmm. and it was the Moose Lodge when (laughs) Nashville was in Davidson County Nashville was dry Oh, okay. So you couldn't drink, yeah. and the county you could drink in. But being a private moose lodge, people could come here and drink. <laughs> and on the road coming up here, there were a lot of moonshiners up in the holler. Yeah, it looks and like it, that kind of a place. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, fortunately, it's still countryside out here, but mm-hmm. I'm only well, 16 miles from town, so mm-hmm. I can make it in for a board meeting in 15, yeah. 20 minutes. Yeah. So pretty much everybody in country music partied here from probably 55 up until 78 when they moved the location to uh, a main road close to here, Charlotte. Mm -hmm. But all of them pretty much partied here. So what was here back then? You've got a studio attached to to the house. house. And there's this giant warehouse out there. But what was it like? Oh, um, the house where we are... Uh, was the bar area. Cool. And the three deep sinks are still here and the mm-hmm. cabinetry and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, I had cab- custom cabinets 
made from where the ice machine used to be. Okay. Um, and uh, there was one bath upstairs, and the men's room uh, with the urinal and everything was down here, and the women's, what I call the big hair room, because <laughs> when I walked into it, it had, the, you know, the whole wall had two mirrors, yeah. and the chairs are where they did their makeup and everything, and they had two stalls. And Lynn Anderson, who I had the opportunity to produce a couple albums on, um, used to tell me that the far stall was the Patsy Cline stall. Where the dance hall is now in the back, which is 3,600 square feet and a double-tier stage, mm-hmm. uh, was built in 1969 okay. for dances and parties. But So everybody came up here and drank, and since mm-hmm. this was a private club, you could. And, what, and were, were there ties between the club and the music business in some way? Oh, sure. I mean, this was a place where um, bands would play right over in that corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, J.J. Kale had that fireplace uh, built because this is where they would hang right. um, when they were rehearsing in the dance hall that was built in 69. Um, and the roulette tables and the gambling tables and stuff were upstairs. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At that point in like 1969, 70, was J.J. Kale living here in this house? Or that was. No, no, that was later. Okay. His manager, Audie Ashworth, and producer and publisher yeah. um, bought this place at auction. And you can imagine the uh, quarterly income from having the publishing and. On J.J. Produ- Kale's. Yeah, stuff. on J.J. Kale. Massive. Yeah. So every quarter when he got his statements, Audie was an old friend of mine. So he bought farms. Okay. And this place came up for auction, and I remember coming to look at it, but I didn't have that money at that time. Right. So he bought it, and he and I became friends, and he and I were going to build a studio on the back. You and Audie Ashworth? Yeah. Okay. And we had plans and everything. We had two Neves um, that were being put together. It took five years to put them together. Finally, when they were ready to go, he had mics, I had mics, I had outboard gear, he had outboard gear. Yeah. Um. And he wanted to just have a place where people could hang, you know, and if yeah. they wanted to take naps and stuff, they could go upstairs and they wouldn't be disturbed by the studio. Right. Um, J.J. Kale started hanging here, and Audie had publishing companies, so this would be right. like a place where writers could go out of town 15 minutes mm-hmm. and sit for the day and write songs. Okay. There was a Neve, an old black Neve, sitting in the living room upstairs uh-huh. that um, they could record stuff okay i mean it's a full 24 track there's two chambers down here two emts yeah like i said that was built in 1969 and before that it was a flat area kind of like it had seating you know raised seating you know like in a stadium kind of thing on both sides yeah and they would have chicken fights no way (laughs) oh yeah they had chicken fights up here wow so there's some real mojo out there man (laughs) audie and i got together looked at the plans yeah um and and we went, okay, let's do it. Yeah. Um, two days later, he was on his way to the, the hospital with chest pains, and he had a massive coronary. Oh, my That God. was in August. Um, and then in February, I was heading out to a, a session, and uh, I got a phone call from a guy, and he goes, is this Bill Van Dick? And I said, no, this is Bill Vorndick. What are you <laughs> selling? He goes, oh, no, I'm the administrator of Audie Ashworth's um, a state, and um, do you still have interest in the property on Fire Tower Road? And I went, yes. He goes, so he so he died before the before it 
oh, any of it be, came before, to fruition. Yeah, I mean, okay. once he died, we had to, we, you know, we stopped everything. Right. I said, well, when can I see it? And he goes, well, anytime you want. And I said, well, how about 15 minutes? Yeah. Because um, I'm not that far. And he goes, yeah, I can get, I'll call a real estate agent. Yeah. So I called Jerry Douglas, who I was doing overdubs with, and told him, you know, give me about an hour because I need to take care of something. Yeah. And uh, so I came up and looked it over and yeah. um, signed it. Wow. The contract right there. But you'd seen it before, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you knew um, what you were getting into. And where we're sitting at that time, um, since Audie's death, this was all full of J.J. Kale's PA equipment. And one of the first consoles at the Quonset Hut was on that shelf over there. Really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Audie collected a lot of stuff. I bet. And the dance hall was full of old cars. His his car collection? Yeah. Wow. Probably one of them. Were you looking at the time for a, like, obviously you we were looking to have for a, a place because the kids, right. yeah, I was looking for a place because I lived in Westmead and the judge next door told me that you can't have a studio uh, in your right. home. Yeah. And that all started because one of the neighbors saw Ricky Skaggs and Vince Gill leaving the house <laughs> and complained to the judge because I didn't call her and invite her over to meet him. <laughs> <laughs> it was Nashville. Really? You know, yeah, yeah. So the judge, I saw the judge like the next day or something. He goes, Bill, you had some people coming out of your house yesterday, and there's complaints on the street because you didn't invite them over, and you didn't invite me over to meet them. And I went, what? And he goes, well, you know, Bill, legally you're not supposed to have a studio in your house. Busted. Yeah, I was busted. Before we move on about this place, just give me an idea of like pre all that and pre like you and Audie and Audie living here and you knowing about this place and all that, mm -hmm. what was it like back in there? Like what exactly, like, so labels would come up here and like hold events for like um, well, PR and that kind of thing? Or was well, it more just loose parties? You know, stuff? they probably did, but there was parties, but a lot of artists got their starts here. Okay. I mean, the George Joneses and the, and the Patsy Klein's. And, they all and, came up here and would have played gigs. And oh, oh, well, yeah, they would have played and uh, jumped in with the band, whoever the band was. My keys and said, Here, take her for a spin. The old man shook his head and then he looked at me again and grinned. He said, Georgia, don't think you understand. It ain't your little car I'm on. It's the bird in that bed keeps turning me on. Lord, she was And so, what it, was it going? Four or five, six nights a week, kind oh, of thing. Yeah, back in the day. I'll, yeah, probably back in the day. The weekends probably would have been more important, you know, for people to come up here. But right. Uh, so then, someone like Patsy Klein, she would have just come up here to like party and hang out. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, all of them. Yeah. You know, George Jones, um, Lynn Anderson told me um, a lot of stories about having to come up and pick up um, Glenn Sutton, who was her first husband. Yeah. Al Gallico, um, Buddy Killen. Uh huh. Um, and a bunch of other, you know, publishers and producers and stuff because they were so drunk <laughs> that they couldn't, they knew that they couldn't drive home. Right. Yeah. So they were stranded up here. And if you see the road coming up here that's windy, yeah. you can imagine being drunk and trying to get out of here. <laughs> it's like, like going is, to Ralph Stanley's a little Stanley's bit before place. Uber. Yeah. <laughs> so what records have you made in here that, that, um. Oh, gosh. 
uh, last 16 years. Now, the bigger projects... You still do them in town. I still do them in town. Right. Is that your preferred studio in town, Oceanways? Uh, Oceanways, um, Ronnie Millsap's old place, because yeah. that's where most of the Flecktone stuff was done. Oh, it was done there. Even when John Loudermilk owned that studio before me and actually built that studio, that's where the Allison Krauses and the Juries and the Bayless... All that Early stuff. albums, yeah. yeah. Once we've gotten to the Flecktones and stuff, that moved to Ronnie Millsaps. Uh-huh. with Jerry Douglas on his records now do you do them here at all or no um, the Earls of Leicester was done at Ocean Way A and then I mixed it here okay if I'm going to do rock and roll and I have done rock quite a bit of rock and sure. roll here and I run 16 pair of snake that I've got which are old J.J. Kale snakes um, run them right into the, the dance hall fuck yeah I've got 3600 square feet and the drums sound freaking amazing <laughs> you know and do if you have you, a bit of space carved out out there to track I have in? yeah yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk a bit about your background first, like where you came from and how you got into audio engineering. We were just talking outside a bit about how mm. you were kind of employed in the in the newspaper world a bit. Yeah. I, I'm wondering if that had any impact on your engineering abilities and skills. My mom was a songwriter. Oh, okay. So I grew up listening to songs that I didn't hear on the radio, but when in friends Vir- would in come up. Virginia in Virginia? In Northern Virginia. Okay. Yeah, I grew up... Uh, in Great Falls, okay, Virginia. So I was writing songs at a young age. Was she like a country songwriter, or no, more pop? Okay, you know, kind of a Tony Bennett kind of Frank Sinatra kind of those kind of songs. And she was actually writing songs for those yeah, kind of and artists. She, and yeah, wow. and the year that I was born, nineteen fifty, she won uh, some BMI, you know, amateur songwriter really? award. Yeah. Okay. And what'd your dad do? My dad worked at the Washington Star newspaper on okay. Capitol Hill. Yeah. So that's cool. You were around songwriting and stuff. And was that a big thing around your house? Or like, was it something that your well, mom just kind of did? Uh, my mom like, my mom did it, you know, and, uh-huh. and people would come over and like I mentioned, they would sing her songs. And so you got into music playing a bit of piano. And was that something that you were really keen on? Or was it just something that you had to do? I had, it was just something I did. Yeah. You know, and then I picked up guitar in grade school. Uh-huh. Buddy Holly was real popular at the time. Yeah. I worked at a place called Lake Fairfax yeah. in between Great Falls and Ruston, uh-huh. Virginia, and um, gave me enough money. So my first electric guitar was an airline, and I had a Silvertone amp. Sweet. Nice combo, man. Yeah. <laughs> and then I got an Ampex amp. Uh-huh. Um, but I was playing, once I got into the seventh grade at Herndon Intermediate School, yeah. the intermediate school was next to the high school. So I played in a rock and roll band yeah. with a bunch of seniors. I played lead guitar. This would be like late, uh, early 60s 63. Okay. Um, um, but then the Beatles in 64. Um, that all changed. Well, that all changed. And I was there at their first gig in the United States. Were you really? Yeah. Bob Bedford, who's at the Sheraton Hotel in Telluride. If anybody gets to Telluride, look up Bob Bedford. They call him Bo Bedford. Uh-huh. Uh, he was one of the lead singers, Dick Farner and Rick Stafford. This is your band. 
Well, this was the band when I was in intermediate school. Okay. You know. Yeah. Uh, we didn't really play all that many gigs, but I used to play at, you know, parties and, mm-hmm. you know, dances and stuff. Yeah. So they asked my dad if I could go to this concert, the Chevelles and somebody else was, yeah. you know, some other group was playing at the Washington Sports Arena. Actually, the Beatles actually got their first airplay in Washington, D.C. from um, a cousin or something of George Harrison that kept on calling um, the radio station, (laughs) that cousin Duffy at WBIK, I think it was, over in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh And that's where the record broke. If if it had not broke there... Was it I Want to Hold Your Hand or was it something... uh, I think it was I Want to Hold Your Hand. So they kind of played the guy. They did it as they were the opening act. The Beatles were? Yeah. <laughs> For uh, who? I think it was the Chevelles. Okay. And some other people. Wow. I think it was Bob Bedford said, well, let's let's go to the, the, the uh, Shorm. I think the Beatles were staying at the Shorm after the concert. So we went over. And, and I hotel. actually got. Yeah, it's a hotel. Yeah. Um, and they, they had done um, something with the British Embassy. Okay. You know, that afternoon. Yeah. Um, and they did, I understand they did that show because the Ed Sullivan show didn't pay that well. <laughs> and so they did it as a pickup gig. So they'd have the money to go to f- the floor to get their picture taken on the, you know, the Troy Donahue show and 77 Sunset right. Strip that were real popular shows yeah. in England. Okay. You know, so they got their pictures taken for the they were British. Big tourists. Yeah. So we went over there and I never got to meet Paul, but. You know, I mean, at that point, I was, you know, 13. Yeah. And they were just hanging out in the hallways and stuff. So I got to meet really guys that were probably <laughs> on the, the roadies and Brian Epstein. And, yeah. But I didn't never meet Paul. And so what was your, like, were you guys just playing locally around Virginia and Washington? Yeah, and, and we would open up for um, um, the British Walkers and um, the Telstars uh-huh. and, and different English groups that were coming over for the first time. Okay. And they would play for, you know, uh, 1,200, 1,500 people. Yeah. And um, the guy that booked us was at uh, Giant Music. Okay. So we opened up for a lot of those groups. Okay. I remember when the Grateful Dead first came. 66, 67 in yeah, there, kind of? Yeah. yeah. And the guy, I won't say is mention his name, but um, for reasons that will follow, <laughs> um, he called me and goes, hey, you know, after school tomorrow, um, come over to the house. I went, oh, okay. So I went over, and I was handed a pound of marijuana. Yeah. And he goes, look, you can smoke as much as you want, but I need grocery bags full of joints for uh Oh, here's Saturday a pound. Night. Go roll it. Yeah, go roll it. <laughs> Get all your friends and go roll it. So <laughs> so he rolled it, and my one of my gigs was to take the um, grocery bags yeah. and throw out joints to the to audience, the to the crowd, before really? the Grateful Dead came really? on stage. Yeah. Wicked. Yeah. <laughs> so how far did that band go? Like, did it kind of fizzle out? Or when, once you... we graduated from high school, I mean, I had, my dad had already said that I was going to be a photo engraver and wouldn't allow me to attend Juilliard or Eastman. Um, so Juilliard was something you were interested in? Yeah, theory and composition. Okay. Um, Still as a guitar player or... Or pianist, or as a composer. As a composer. Okay. My band director was Fritz Velke, the composer mm-hmm. for seventh, eighth, ninth grade. I was first chair trumpet. Oh, okay. But my dad didn't want me to be a music teacher, and uh-huh. you know, because it didn't pay right. as well as what he had in mind for me. Okay. But also, when I was in high school, 
um, I was pitching songs at the Brule Building. The summer when I was 15 years old, my dad let me go up to the Brule Building. Did you have a connection at the Brule Building or anything? No. You just went in there cold. But, the, but Steve, back then, you could just walk in. Really? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, um, and Tommy Dowd. Like, Tommy Dowd. Stoller just be around and like. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, crazy. Uh, you could talk to all these people. So you just walk in there and, and yeah. pitch your songs to who? To whoever would listen. Really? Yeah. Okay. And Was there um, a lot of people doing that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, and I had to stay at the Taff Hotel, uh-huh. and I would go in through the back door of the bar. I was underage, right. you know. So I could sit there, and the bartender would give me Cokes and stuff. Yeah. And Lionel Hampton would normally be playing. No way. Oh, yeah. Like every night? Yeah. That was his Most gig. of the time, that was his, like his house gig. And back then, you could get into the labels and stuff. So, uh-huh. I mean, I met Tommy Dowd. He was really, really a nice person. Really? Yeah. And he was with Atlantic at that point? Or, uh-huh. Yeah. So, what was your experience like pitching songs? Um, they, they encouraged me. Yeah. But I think it was Tommy Dowd that said, you know, you need to go to Nashville, son. Really? Yeah. Because of this yeah. kind of songs you were writing? and the kind of songs I was writing, yeah. At that time, the, the band had recorded some stuff, original music. Yeah. And we were going to get signed to ESP disc but then you know everybody's going off to college and stuff okay. so we didn't was that a independent label or yeah. something okay. uh-huh. the fugs were on it oh really and, yeah oh cool there okay. was a guy that mentored me he worked for RCA he was a, a promotion man and stuff uh-huh. and he would come out to the gigs and stuff and he liked the songs and he said look you know when you graduate from high school let's go down so in June to Nashville yeah uh-huh. and my first day I signed a bunch of Songs to Cedarwood Publishing Company. Really? Yeah. How did you even get in the office to do that? So and you could walk into any publishing company. You just waltz right on in there. Yeah. And they say, would hey, say, I got yeah. some songs. Yeah. You'd and get then, arrested if you did that now. Yeah. <laughs> so I would come down and pitch songs and stuff. And that was back when, you know, you could go in and um, see Mary John Wilkins. Now, so who is she? Mary John Wilkins uh, wrote, uh, co-wrote The Long Black Veil. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and she had her own publishing company. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She used to be a Cedarwood writer. Okay. So was Cedarwood one of the bigger publishing companies now? Yeah, it's one of the big three. Okay. Yeah. There's Acuff Rose, yeah. Cedarwood, and then a, a new one called Tree Publishing. Right. So they signed individual songs, not you yes. as a writer. Right. They just were like, I'll take that one, that one, that yeah. one. Yeah. What was the tipping point? Like, what made you go, like, okay, that's where I got to be? Um, when I came down, I went over and pitched some songs to uh, Chet Atkins, and he got to be friends. And was he another situation where you could just walk into his office? Sure. Really? <laughs> sure. You could go there. And, and where was he working then? He was at RCA. He had his office there on the second floor. So you just met him by waltzing into his office. Yeah. And he, That's awesome. And, and we had a, we had a, uh, a friendship there. And yeah. um, I came home, and I'll never forget, because my dad and I were going through a battle, because I was thinking right. about moving to New York. And I came home, and he, he goes, William, come in here and sit down. And he, he always <laughs> called me Billy, but... When I did something wrong, he called me William. Uh-huh. 
And I said, yes, sir. So I came and sat down. I said, what, what's wrong? <laughs> Why would Chet Atkins be calling this house? Would your dad have known who Chet Atkins was? Oh, gosh, yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My dad, you know, he was pretty up on everything. Okay. Um, he's a good guy. I said, well, dad, you know, I... I know him i mean I've, I've met him what did what did he want he goes really you know him and i went yeah i mean because we had his records and stuff yeah yeah um he says well uh he's coming up in two weeks to play uh wolf trap and he wants to know if you'd like to join him for dinner um and you need to call his secretary uh-huh. i think her name was betty yeah. for some reason betty comes to mind so i called her and one had dinner with chet before the show awesome just me yeah. um and when I would come down, I would always go by and visit. Uh-huh. And we'd go out to lunch or something, and he would invite me down. He goes, you know, after a meeting, he always made the meeting before he had to do a session. So the meeting would be after lunch, like at 1 o'clock. Uh-huh. And we meet for 15, you know, 20 minutes. And yep. he goes, hey, Bill, you want to come down and hang in the studio? Okay. And I did that. Yeah. And also, when I was pitching songs as a teenager into my early 20s, uh, Bradley's barn was across the street, which was the Quonset hut. The Quonset hut, yeah. Okay, it became the Quonset hut, and there's a black, uh, there's a black couch. There's black couches most of the studios because <laughs> it didn't show dirt. Right. <laughs> and uh, you could go over before a session, and you get, you know, you get a, have your thing of peanuts, your little tube of peanuts, and a and a Coke or a Pepsi or something, and you could sit there and watch the the session if you didn't. Same Bug thing. anyone. Yeah. So what kind of stuff would you be watching go down? George Jones. Really? Um, or what, were, what, what, what would Jones. those George Jones sessions have been like? Like, what do you recall about seeing something like that? Oh, what was interesting is a lot of the amps that didn't have microphones in front of them. They had taken alligator clips and put them on the back, and the amps sat next to the player. So yeah. the player didn't have to play real loud, yeah. and they didn't wear headphones. Right. Everybody heard everybody, and they did it, and they did it. They didn't overdub and fix anything. Right. Back when musicians could actually play and right. concentrate on three minutes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, if the amps weren't mic'd, just the they rooms had, they, were mic'd? Well, no, they put alligator clips on the speakers. Oh, okay. And then they ran through a transformer. Really? And then they, that's crazy. And they padded it down, and that's how yeah. they got their signal. Really? Yeah. That's nuts. And then they would probably have, you know, mics as ambient and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. that's how the fuzz tone came about. Right. Because they had clipped on Grady Martin's Grady Martin. amp, yeah. amp. And I think it was Jim Williamson that said, you know, don't play anything until I go in and pad down the console. And he did it, which blew the, uh, the tra- input transformer. <laughs> um, oh, so that wasn't it was a- on a Marty Robbins session. That wasn't a a broken speaker. That was an overloaded transformer. Exactly. Sweet, sweet, sweet love I want you to be As Marty Robbins goes, that's really a cool sound. And, of course, the engineers go, God, we can't do that. And Marty goes, <laughs> we just did. Yeah, yeah let's, let's make a bass solo <laughs> with it. Where did that leave you? Like uh, meeting Chad and being you know, involved, invited down to those sessions must have been 
kind of enough to push you over the edge to move here at some point, right? Yeah, well, it, w- it was, and and it was quite often that Chet would say, "Billy, you know, you need to think about moving down here." Yeah, you know, because you the tapes that you play for me are pretty good, and you uh-huh. could be an engineer and being a songwriter. Where did the engineer yeah. thing come from? Like, was well, it was just out of desperation when I was a kid. Really, I mean, when I was in a rock and roll band, um, I had uh, Lafayette mixers and stuff, yeah, and I had a two track tape recorder, yeah. And when my band wasn't working, I would go record other bands. Okay, so you were into it back then, yeah. And in Chet, high school. Chet was aware that you, yeah, that you recorded, yeah, yeah. Um, were you accomplished at it at that point, or were you just kind of well? You'd obviously been around a lot, and I've seen, been around a lot, yeah. Seen a lot of it uh-huh. go down. Um, and did you know what you were doing technically yet, engineering wise? Oh, sure, you sure, did. Okay, sure, yeah. The main thing I wanted to do was having seen big studios and seeing how the different producers worked. Yeah. And while I was at Belmont, I I used to go down and hang with Ken Lexton and um, a lot of the engineers at CBS, uh-huh. and I was like to go for you know, empty ashtrays yeah. into a metal can. Yeah. And um, <laughs> um, I remember one night uh, uh, Johnny Winter was doing something with Ken Laxton, and he goes, hey, kid, God, turn my fender up to 12. And I, like a dumb kid, I went, well, fenders only go to 10. He goes, mine goes to 12. <laughs> <laughs> that pre- yeah. predated Nigel learned, Tufnell, too. And then later Ken Laxton goes, what did I tell you about opinions? <laughs> <laughs> so I got I hung out there. Yeah. Um, but I really wanted to be somebody that would know the music business as a whole, so I could help Ma- people. Like, were you interested in managing and stuff like that? I had already managed yeah. and booked bluegrass groups and stuff. I did that. That's how I paid the the rent and, okay. and stuff, and okay. the mortgage. What about your relationship with bluegrass at that point? There's obviously a big history around Virginia and oh yeah stuff. But well, I went it? to bluegrass festivals when I was in high school. Okay, my brother, who's ten years older than I, went. He was at Fincastle, which was one of the first ones, uh-huh. and um, he would head out um, the festivals on the weekend. So in my going into my senior year of high school, I went to. I would always go to Berryville. Uh-huh. And then the guy that did the sound, you know, would set the microphones and then walk away and drink um, for the rest of the day. <laughs> so Carlton Haley saw me go up and adjust some of the mics because yeah. I had was friends with some of the musicians that were going on stage to adjust the sound. And he goes, kid, he never did know how to say my last name, but he <laughs> goes, kid, you come up to me when you come to these festivals. I'll let you in for free, give you all the cheeseburgers, french fries, and Cokes if you do the sound. <laughs> That's good pay. Yeah. So um, Eddie Adcock started doing, you know, sound. And so I started working with Eddie Adcock. Oh. Um, and I went on the road with him for maybe six or seven months. You'd oh, been he, a manager. You'd been a live sound guy. You'd worked in the studio a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, um, but I never thought of being an engineer. I, I was thinking more of being... You know, a producer, um, uh-huh. um, kind of a, a a mediator, someone that's there uh-huh. to help an artist and have the politics and the knowledge to help them. Uh-huh. And that's what I've done with most of the artists. You know, they come to me and they have a dream. Yeah. And you know, after they've set their, I make them do a five year plan where they're where they are now, where they want to go, how they think they're going to get there. Uh-huh. So they have. They know that it's not an overnight thing. And right. It's not an overnight thing. Yeah. And um, you sort of did that with Allison Krauss too, right? 
Yeah. 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 So how how did you how did you go from being a student at Belmont to like I know obviously I need to ask you about um the Marty Robbins oh yeah thing because you how did that come about and like I was I was co-writing with a lot of different people but I was still doing demos yeah. because engineering is not you know to me it was you have inputs and outputs and you got to watch your signal to noise ratio and yeah. your you know your whole signal chain but that wasn't a complex thing for me, so uh-huh. I could I could do it. And when I was in England doing a BBC broadcast in '76 for one of the musicals that I had written, um, and I met Harlan Howard, who became friends at Tree. So I would, besides Chet, I would have lunch with Mary John Wilkins or uh-huh. Harlan Howard, um, and then I started uh, doing Harlan Howard's demos. Okay, and. I think I was doing Loretta Lynn's publishing company demos. Marty Robinson's studio had just opened. Uh-huh. Al Gore was the engineer, but the chief engineer was Scotty Moore. Really? Yes. The Scotty Moore. The Scotty Moore, yeah. Wow. So, was this over on Music Row, too? Where yeah, it's places? where um, Omni is right now. Oh, okay. Omni, well, after Marty died, it yep. became Omni. And I booked it because it was 16 track and it was cheaper than 24 tracks, and you didn't really need 24 tracks for, you know, Publishing demos. come demos. Sure. Yeah. And Marty knew all the, the people that owned the publishing company, so he, yeah. I'm sure he gave him a discount and stuff. Yeah. And Scotty didn't want to do it because he had a duplicating place right. where he made cassettes. Um, and Marty came in one day, and I had never met him. He sat on the couch in the back and made me a nervous wreck and came up and introduced himself in between a, um, a take, getting ready to go to a lunch break and stuff. He always timed those kind of things. You knew perfectly well who he was, obviously. Oh yeah. Oh gosh. Yes. <laughs> I was. I was a nervous wreck because uh, he was my dad's hero. He, my dad right. loved Marty Robbins. I caught a good one. It looked like it could run up on its back and away I did ride, just as fast as I could from the West Texas town of El Paso back to the badlands of New Mexico. Back in El Paso, my life would be worthless. Everything's gone in life, nothing is left. It's been so long since I've seen So he asked me what I was doing the next day. I said, well, I've, tomorrow I've got a uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. He goes, well, after you get lunch and stuff, you know, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, um, you know where my office is, don't you, son? I went, yes, sir. And he goes, tell Evelyn um, that, uh, and she'll be expecting you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd like to talk with you. And when, yes, sir. I had no idea what it was. Uh-huh. He gave me a tour of his closet, mm-hmm. which was a walkthrough closet with nudie suits on the left and nudie suits on the right, <laughs> and the hats that match the suits, Amazing. and the boots that match the everything. You know. Wow. Um, so he went in his office and he said, uh, "Scotty thinks a lot of you, and I've I've been checking you out for the last couple of weeks." Talked to Lou Bradley, some mm-hmm. of the boys over CBS that I know, and and uh, you spent a lot of time there when you were in college, and, and you know a way around my studio. And I went, well, yes, sir. He says, I'm I'm going to need to have an engineer to be making my records. And I went, well, you know, Scotty. He goes, well, Scotty doesn't want to be chief engineer. He's got that big business going on. And, mm-hmm. and uh, Scotty's recommended you too. Wow. Would you be interested in being my in, in chief engineer? And uh, making my records for CBS. Yeah, amazing. And I was flabbergasted. Really? And uh, I, I said, well, well, thank you, sir. He goes, when can you start? And I had my little count, you know, my little satchel on my calendar. And I said, well, you know, I've got 
demos and stuff. He goes, you know, Eddie, he's the studio manager, you know, yeah. make yourself at home. Yeah. He goes, when you've cleared your calendar from, you know, your demos and stuff. We'll get going. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Best, I'll say it again, the best guy I ever worked for. Great <laughs> sense of humor and what a stylist. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. How many records did you end up making for him? I was a three. Um, with Love, The Legend, worked on everything you always wanted. Uh -huh. Some of that was cut at a different studio because he had a different producer. Mm -hmm. I didn't do his final one. Who was producing these records? Uh, Eddie Fox and him. Okay. To be with you, my darling, is my prayer. But way down deep. You went down live. Everybody was there. You uh -huh. had two acoustic guitarists. You had Pig Robbins. You know, you had. Was Grady still the, around then? No, he didn't. He didn't play. It was Jack. Okay. Played uh, guitar. Jack who? Um, Jack Pruitt. Who was on steel and stuff? That varied. Okay. It was Lloyd or, or Larry Sasser. Uh -huh. um, Lloyd Maines Lloyd, or Lloyd Green? Lloyd Green. So everything went down. The Jordanaires were there. We would staff. So the Jordanaires would sing live too? Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, they all. That was not an overdub. Oh, no. They oh. all got, I had Mike and Omni and it. It was right near Pig, okay. near the piano. Yeah. Um, How many, would the number of Jordanaires vary from session to session or was it always? It was always four. Four, right. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. That's cool. Oh, they all went down. And Marty. And Marty, yeah. Live. Yeah. Was, would he play guitar too? No. So he was just singing? Yeah. And was he in pretty close proximity to everything as well, or was mm -hmm. he isolated in some way? Yeah, or? I had him so that he could do his vocals. Redo his vocals. Yeah, okay. and, and that was the time also that uh, headphones, you know, were... Starting. Were, yeah, were, well, they were already in. Uh -huh. We had headphones there, but nobody really used them. Because they were yeah. not used to them. But then I built a vocal booth uh -huh. um, in the right in the corner for uh -huh. him. I had a five hundred dollar budget to remodel the studio. <laughs> Bottomless, <laughs> the control room. <laughs> so would he always over redo his vocals, or would he not necessarily? He'd get them done live too. Yeah, yeah. He must but been, sometimes he would. Was he, he incredible was in the studio? Like, was, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll take tell you. All your ma all you males are singing love songs. Uh -huh. If it was a love song and it was a ballad, Marty would jog around the room. <sighs> really? Until he, until he got. Really? Yeah, and then he'd sing a little bit. And then he'd put up my hand and I'd stop and he goes, do I have all my breath back? And he goes, I went, yeah. And then he'd run around the, <laughs> and then we would punch <laughs> in. So it would sound that he, he was making love <laughs> during the ballad. That is awesome. It worked. There's Mexican maidens play guitars and sing songs about Billy, their boy bandit king. Ere his young manhood has reached its sad end with a notch on his pistol for 21 men. Was on a sad night when poor Billy died. He said One thing, too, um, Conway Twitty was the same way. Um, he did the same trick? Marty didn't smoke, and Conway didn't smoke. But they would, um, 
my gig before every session was to have a pack of cool mm-hmm. um, cigarettes there and the the honey holes thing, and I would always have them on the the counter. Yeah. And Marty would light up. That was, that was back when you know everybody smoked, and right. you had ashtrays, and you had yeah. metal trash cans. Yeah. Um, and you always set them out the back door after you after you cleaned up after a session, uh-huh. and you put the trash can outside the door. So he would smoke about half of it just to get that rasp. Really. And I remember um, just before he died, moving his um, uh, music stand, and it, he'd store his lozenge on the right hand corner on the right and there's you know there's a like a little mound of you know sugar over the oh, years awesome. that it had been there yeah yeah and um, then the night the the just before M- marty passed um i came in one morning and there's a guy he looked like a homeless guy sitting on the step of the studio there yeah. at the entrance and so i pulled in the parking place and looked over and i went joe and he goes hey bill i said you look terrible i mean he was all covered in soot and stuff and I went, you okay? And he goes, oh, you don't know, do you? And I went, no. Because at that point, I lived pretty close to the studio. Yeah. It was me, you know, just out West End. He goes, the barn burned last night. He goes, can I hide out here? And we always kept our extra clothes and stuff. So he took a shower and stuff. And Eddie was out of town, the studio manager. So he slept on the couch. The barn being his studio? Barn, Owen Bradley's barn. Oh, Owen Bradley's. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The barn had burned that, that night. Uh-huh. Um, and then he started doing work there too, and then he did work at the music mill. He was an engineer. He was an engineer. Oh okay. yeah, all the all the uh, the Conway Twitty, Loretta Lynn, all that stuff. Oh wow, all the stuff with Owen Bradley since yeah. probably sixty three, sixty four. Because, of course, Orrin Bradley built the Quonset Hut. Yeah. And then when CBS bought that, that apartment building and then tore that down and then became Studio B, where Bob Dylan recorded and yeah. then Studio A. Where we were the other night. Yeah. I want to just shift from that point in your life, which would have been, I guess you were working there through into the early 80s or something. Yeah, 83, October of probably 83. You know, I didn't record a lot of bluegrass. John Hartford would come in with Buddy Spiker when Marty was out on tour or something. And then um, in that case, I would I would book bluegrass sessions. But so Marty... You, did you record some of Hartford's stuff? Oh, gosh, yes. Which, which records? Uh, it was, wasn't necessarily records as much as projects when he would come in want to record... record you know, have a bunch of guys and come in and record. Because okay. he knew I had a background in bluegrass. Yeah. I mean, I love bluegrass music. I mean, yeah. I, I watched, I saw the Carter, uh, Ralph and, and uh, Carter, when I was maybe 14 or something yeah. at Fairfax High School. When Marty passed, um, 
Jerry Douglas was here, and Bela had just probably, you know, starting to move here. Where was Bela from? Bela's from New York, and he was in a group called Spectrum, which was yeah. on the circuit. Um, he, and they would play the festivals and stuff. So I knew him. And had you on. met Jerry at this what, point well, already? Oh, yeah. I'd known Jerry since he was still in high school playing the summertime before his senior year with the country gentleman. Oh. My brother was Jerry's best man when he got married the first time. You know, as a teenager, he was really good on the dobro, and the country gentleman brought him out that summer. And then yeah. he, after he graduated from high school, he went to work. Okay. And then a guy by the name of Ricky Skaggs <laughs> um, left Ralph Stanley to go with the country gentleman, then Doyle Lawson. Yeah. So, so I was in the middle of it all. So, um, and I knew them all, you know, because we right. hang out at my my brother's place, and yep. they knew me from doing sound and stuff. Yeah. So Jerry and Bailey, we went to lunch or something, and, and uh, he goes, uh, "What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do?" I said, "Well, I'm gonna go work for Ken Laxton." As soon as Marty passed away, uh -huh. um, I was in a restaurant, and Ken Laxton was leaving CBS. And started his own production company. And he goes, mm -hmm. hey, kid, what are you going to do now that Marty died on you? And I, I said, oh, you know, I'll find work, and uh -huh. demos and yeah. you know, different projects, find a studio or something. Well, Axon says, forget about that crap. Mm -hmm. You're going to come work for me. So I made, I engineered his records and got to spend time with Alan Toussaint. And because oh. you know, um, um, Ken came from the sound pit in Atlanta and worked for Tommy Dowd. Okay. So I got to learn from Ken how Tommy did it and how uh -huh. he did it yep. and how the Memphis crew did it and how they did it in Atlanta. Right. So I had the Nashville and I had those two. And Ken was a lot of fun. I mean, Did when, he have some really specific ways that he wanted things done being oh, from yeah. where he was from? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Like what are, some, what are some big differences? Was different, different microphone choices. Uh -huh. um, Tommy Dowd had showed him how to make 57 sound really good on Tom's. On what? On toms. On toms, yeah. Where I would have normally used four twenty ones, but uh -huh. after you learn that, you know, it's pretty much lead the drum. So is that when you started working with Bela and Jerry and stuff as well? Yeah, it was um, one of the first albums that was done at what at Star Gem Studio was Deviation. Oh, okay. And that was Mark O'Connor's first yep. Nashville sessions and stuff. That's when Mark and I, you know, became longtime friends, and yep. then I helped him. Get on Warner Brothers and then uh -huh. did worked on his albums. And then did Jerry's at that point the Master Master Series was coming along. What what's that? The Master Series was a lower budget instrumental albums, um, um, the Edgar Meyer albums. Uh huh. I did the, those three and which, Jerry Douglas's. Albums. Which Jerry Douglas records were in that series? Under the Wire. I think oh, okay. It was for like the first one. Yeah.
When the Flectones came along, how did you approach, like, as somebody that was kind of known as a acoustic recording well, person I was known as a country guy. Right. But at that point, I had done so many country albums. I mean, hundreds at that uh-huh. point were under my belt. Yep. And it was the same old, same old. Right. It was a challenge to make their instruments sound like their instruments. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they were probably... It was probably, more of an art form. They were probably needing a guy like you that really cared to kind of get that... I mean, they were going through a whole new thing, too, of like yes. bringing new sounds and new directions into bluegrass music and uh-huh. that whole crew of Sam Bush and Tony Rice. and Sure. And, and having and, the physics of sound and, and knowing the harmonic overtones of instruments and where the yeah. resonant dominant frequencies are in different keys and how you can make those pockets within yeah. tonal over accumulation yeah. um, to clarify the instrument. Sitting with Bela, and he goes, what are you calculating? I went, well, I'm this key, and then I'm looking at the overtones of the different instruments. Yeah. What? <laughs> so I know where the different pockets are, on mm-hmm. where those overtones are falling, so that you can have clarity by subtracting frequencies yeah. instead of adding frequencies. Right. And in, in general, I mean, I know there's so many records and so many different setups probably in different mm. studios, but like, how would you, with a, say you had an ensemble that was doing something like that, say on like Bellaflex Drive record or one of those Jerry records, um, would you have everyone obviously w- would be in the same room, mm-hmm. but were there, were they wearing, are, are they on headphones or are they just playing? They like were, they, at that point, they were, they were in headphones. Uh-huh. And, um, isolated in some way or not really? Or, um, at the beginning, um, not as much later because everybody wanted to fix things. Right. So I had to watch the axis of the microphones uh-huh. um, and the angling of the yeah. microphones. A good example would be Tales of the Acoustic Planet 2 because I did uh-huh. both of those with Bela. Yeah. We did that in his house. I had Sam, Tony Rice, Jerry Douglas, and Bela in the dining room. Yeah. And I had my foam pads isolating them. Yeah. Um, and the deal was is I couldn't tack anything on the wall. So I have the big foam. Oh, you through. just didn't want you to put anything no, on the Cindy, wall? No, Cindy, his wife wouldn't. You no, know, <laughs> Bill, you can't tack anything on the wall. Okay. But I could take carpet and put them in the corner uh-huh. as bass traps. Okay. So if you listen to that album, I doubt that you'll ever be able to find it, but there is a little bit of leakage uh-huh. of banjo going into Tony Rice's, one of his guitar solos. Besides that, the way I had the microphones angled and where they were positioned, they were out of phase or quarter phase from the next person next to them. Okay, so you could you could get in and fix something mm-hmm. and be able to isolate it enough. Yeah, to... I mean, if you study the patterns of of the microphones yeah. and their responses and their if they're hypercardioid or they're not, yeah. I used um, tried to use more hypercardioid uh-huh. in that particular instance, so it would be right. more focused, right? right. And, and have the cancellation yeah. off axis. So guys like that that are at that caliber, are they really like wanting to redo stuff Some, over and sometimes. over again? Yeah, <laughs> no, but not normally. I mean, yeah. you know, driving inroads, 
If you last listen to the last of the song Sanctuary, uh-huh. um, where they jam and stuff, yeah, um, that's all, yeah, untouched. And then when they got into strength and numbers and stuff, they would, had all become successful instrumentalists. So yeah. uh, well, I'm told that they they went to overdub. Oh, yeah. And they had the budget to it, too. Yeah. You know, for it. Yeah. We were doing albums on nickels and dimes. Right. In a case like Drive, I'm just wondering how um, you would have approached, say, you know, like going into the session and, um, you know, how much um, time and pre-planning went into, you know, how people were actually situated in the room. Um, you know, was it a case of, of them setting up and playing and you kind of had to scramble to, to make how they were set up work? Or was there like a lot of thought put into how they were going to all be set up and how you were going to mic it before, th- before things actually happened? Um, because I've worked with all of them so much before, I kind of, yeah. I knew, I knew, what we were going to be going for, you know, ballpark-wise. Um, the main thing right. is that I had them set up so that they could see each other. The bass player was in, um, okay, in a like booth, but he could see everybody, kind of? and, and everybody could see him. Um, yeah. And, yeah. I had, and the fiddle player was in on um, drive. He was in another booth. There was two booths at the old studio, that particular studio, oh, okay. which was Sound Connection. Then that became uh-huh. um, Music Row Audio when Bruce Dees and I bought out John Laddermilk. Um, okay. But everybody was pretty much seeing everybody. And I had yeah. baffles back then that were um, closed cellular foam so that there were light. But um, if you're sitting in a chair, you could see everybody. Mm-hmm. That's okay. very handy. Yes. You're talking about isolating the bass and the fiddle. Like the fiddle I kind of get because it's generally kind of louder than than some of the other acoustic instruments. With bass, is it just simply a case of you need that separation to get the definition that you were looking for? Exactly, yeah. Okay. Um, I isolated it so that that low end wouldn't be rumbling through other mics. And yeah. if we needed to fix something, there wouldn't be that dropout, especially in the low end. You know, if you're oh, going right. to do okay. an en- ensemble in a room and yeah. you overdub the bass part all of a sudden, or you overdub an instrument that low end all of a sudden shifts in your perspective right yeah and and a huge hole would open up so this so yeah. this way you can you can punch and do fixes and things that you needed to do but still uh but have that isolated bass track still yeah
So when when you're talking about the the cancellation or the the isolation with those kind of angles, I get how you would do that with like two people, but how do you do that with like five people? Were they all in a straight line or something like with well, different angles or how do you Two different two different albums, two different locations. Drive um it was pretty much like straight on, you know. I mean Okay. You know, those guys got their notes and and Fortunately, yeah. fortunately, I was classically trained, so I read and write. So I, I take pretty good notes, especially with yeah. the flectones that came later. Um, right. So I knew where everybody was, and we all translated and called something the same. <laughs> but actually, most of, most of that stuff went down. And you probably didn't have to do a ton of fixes, I would imagine. No, like uh-uh. it was probably. No. Everyone's kind of got their act together in that crew. Yeah. What about what about multiple micings? I'm always curious about that because uh, you know your your recordings in particular are so high fidelity uh, compared to a lot of other stuff. I wondered if you're doing multiple micing, but at the same time, like that opens up a whole set of problems with phasing and things like that. It, Do you it does. Keep it to yes. one mic generally. No, no. I I listen to instruments in with two ears. So yeah. I tried to capture the instrument with two mics, um, and I normally will use a three-to-one ratio, yeah. and if someone doesn't understand that, they can just look it up. But it really varies between the instrument and the timbre of the instrument where I'm going to place those mics. Sure. I mean, yeah. um, the difference between a like Tony in- Rice or a Brian Sutton I would mic differently mm-hmm. because of the player and the instrument. Same in choosing yeah, the mics. Of course. You know, it'd be no different than asking a painter, um, what brush would you use and what color would you use to paint the sky? <laughs> I get it. Okay. Um, I, I, yeah. I don't, well, don't want to get too, you know, out there, but really you got to find the, you know, match the microphone and the preamp for the tone color that you're trying to capture. But if it was like a, a solo guitar where yeah. I was doing a solo guitar, I might have you know three or four mics. I might have yeah. you know the close mics and then I'll have some ambient mics. Yeah. Um, yeah. no different than doing a piano or electric guitar. And right. and bring them in for that particular solo so that all of a sudden the guitar has a uniqueness during the solo that wasn't there during the rhythm. It really depends on on what it is. In the case of bluegrass, something like um, 
a C5, a Mike Tech. I mean, Sam Bush yeah. and David Grisman, a bunch of them are using the, the Mike Tech uh, C5. Yeah, it seems like a is, lot of people are using those these days, eh? Yeah, yeah. And I was very fortunate to be asked to help with some of the design of some of those of the earlier Mike Tech mics. Um, uh-huh. So it's as close to a Cam 84, but more specific without the bump that Neumann had. But until the um, the Mike Tech C5, pretty much Lee, I would have always used a Cam 84 and a Sony 37P or a MyLab um, okay. 96 on the low side, yeah. U67. It really depends yeah. on the on the mandolin and the player because a lot of mandolin players, when they chop, the uh, volume, the amplitude is not the same as when they're picking. Um, of course, yeah. You know, but then there's some players that it is. So, yeah, you know. Yeah. Coming from bluegrass, which is where all that stuff came from. Mm-hmm. But these these this new generation of, of music and musicians was really pushing those boundaries. Was your end of things, because you know, you were just as instrumental as they were in in making those records sound the way that they sound, was your did you think of your role as like breaking new ground sonically while they were getting into all their crazy instrumental side of things as well? Um, because what you're doing is like a whole different level from traditional bluegrass. Like a lot of those yeah, records well, yeah. were that were influencing those guys were just like one mic in a room. I was at a lot of the earlier bluegrass festivals in the late '60s and stuff. So, yeah, um, I you know not only loved the music but the musicianship in it. Um, and then not going into bluegrass originally when I moved to Nashville. And came out worked for Marty Robbins. I did country, but I was still sneaking in, you know, bluegrass acts when when Marty was touring. Um, right, <laughs> just just have fun. The stereo miking technique I I was doing when I was in high school, you know, experimenting, okay. you know, because I had a stereo tape recorder, and I would go from one machine to the next machine, you know. So, yeah. Doc yeah. Watson for instance, would have two mics on his guitar and a vocal mic. That would be standard for you to record Doc in, in those yes. days, was, was with yeah. a stereo thing on, on his guitar, yeah. Yeah. And, and did he not, was it not an issue with him, like, moving around and stuff? Because as soon as that happens, doesn't that kind of all get messed up? Doc didn't move around very much, and also Doc didn't make any mistakes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> when Doc played the song... Did, they were cool. He played a song, and it was very seldomly. And if he, by chance, missed a word or something that he didn't like, then I would punch in all three tracks. Oft I think of my mother and dad When I left them, I know it made them sad but soon I'm going back to that little old log shack Where I spent my happy days as a lad In my dear old southern home I was happy as I could be where the mockingbird What about the Flectone stuff? Like, how did that come about? And were you involved in the experimenting oh. of the sounds and stuff for that? Oh, yeah. Bela came across the Wootens. Yeah. And uh, I think it was the... the uh, Bush Gardens in Williamsburg, Virginia, where they played. Okay. And they weren't living here yet? 
No, I think uh, Victor came had moved, and he was, um, you know, like babysitting and house sitting really? for people. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so Vic, uh, Bela called, and at that point, I, you know, in the studio there, and they would come over and try out different things. Yeah. And Future Man at that point had like a guitar with all these pizos on it. Yeah. So I made the the first harness. You did. Yeah, and then <laughs> later Richard made you know the multi pin connector and stuff. Okay. So this is the interface between his crazy instrument and the yeah, MIDI thing that the he's triggers. triggering. Right? Yeah, right. And w- would those records have been done pretty live, or yeah, they were. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Howard, uh, Howard joined the group, and we went over to Audio Media. Howard Levy, Levy, right? And they had a thirty-two track digital, uh-huh. and uh, we made a harness for um, sixteen tracks for uh, uh, Future Man's sixteen tracks for him. Well, yeah. I guess he needed it. Well, I didn't have any other choices. Right. We couldn't combine. Yeah. Know. So we recorded that. And I remember Bela pitched it to uh, Blue Note. Um, oh, so I, he was un- I, unsigned at that point. He was unsigned for that particular project. project. Okay. Now, a rounder wouldn't have you know, put out that. Right. And we did it all in our, like a week. And he was real upset, but he got turned down, you know, there. You'd already made the record at this point. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Warner Brothers signed the Flecktones. Can you tell me a little bit about your your relationship and the sort of the career path? Because I know you had a lot to do with it with Alison Krauss. Like, wh- where did you first come across her? And she would have been young, right? Like, just a kid when you. She couldn't drive. Her mom would bring her to town. <laughs> uh, she had done a custom album. What's for that? Philo? A custom album where you pay to be on the label. Oh, okay. Uh, a rounder had a, a custom label called Philo. Okay. Where you could buy it, and they would manufacture and distribute it. To promotion, if you pay them, no matter who you were, how good yeah, you were, you and, could just yeah, be on exactly. The, okay, and she was in a group. She was a, a sideman, uh, fiddle player for a group called Union Station, and at a bluegrass conference at IBMA up mm-hmm. in Owensboro, there was this little girl. I didn't know who she was, and she was pointing at me with a bunch of her girlfriends and and giggling. Yeah, and I was standing there with Jerry, and he got, he got I went, "Who's that?" And he goes, "I don't know," but she's. <laughs> I don't know. She's awful young, you know. Yeah. Went, yeah. So I went into the the showcase, you know. Yeah. Didn't think anything more about it. And the next day, she came up to me with Ken Irwin and said, uh, um, I want you to produce my next album. Now, I had known Ken Irwin before. This is Ken Irwin from Rounder Records. Rounder Records. Records. Yeah. I knew Ken Irwin before Rounder Records had their first album. So anyway, they walked up and he goes, Bill, I'd like for you to develop this artist. Mm-hmm. So I went, okay. So I I made her come to town and I gave her vocal lessons and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's a, you know, that's Was she singing me. at all at that point? Oh yeah, she was singing, but she was a sideman, yeah. you know, and she wanted to be a singer. And she was still a sideman, a fiddle player with a group called Union Station. By the time Union Station came to me. Was Union Station like Ron Block uh, and all those guys? No, 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 no. This was that was later. Different... That was my recommendation okay. later. 
So um, that album became Two Highways, but I had her doing a lot of vocal stuff that I have all my artists do. Uh-huh. At that point, she was like all young artists, they were copying somebody. So she sang right. songs copied like Dolly, okay, uh, Rhonda, and yep. Claire Lynch. Yep. And it wasn't until halfway through the Two Highways album that we actually found her. Okay. I got her so confused on front phrasing, up phrasing, down phrasing, back phrasing, <laughs> circle phrasing, that she got so confused that she... Sh- she forgot how to... Sh- she forgot how copy. to copy, and so she, she sang like she would uh-huh. sing. And I, I kept on stopping her and said, okay, I want, it, I want to, you know how a picture is a million words? I want your voice and the way that you say that word to paint a million pictures. So when the listener hears it, they're going to uh-huh. just go off in their mind and picture it, and they'll, they'll, you're just going to send shivers down their back. Mm-hmm. So I said something like, you know, look at a, have you ever seen a road puzzle? With the the dew on it, a little drop of dew, and then just think about that little drop drop of dew on that rose petal. Mm-hmm. She looked at me, and went, what? She calls me Ben. <laughs> She's still a teenager at this point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We get halfway through it. You know, be the rose petal. You know, think of yourself as um, a simile. About halfway through it, I said, okay, well, come on in. She goes, well, I haven't finished it yet. I said, well, yeah, but you got the three. You know, there's three different solos going on. Yeah. Come in and listen down. You want to hear you? She looked at me kind of strange. She came in and she goes, that's me, isn't it? <laughs> Are you going to make me go sing all these other songs we've already done again, Bill? I mean, Ben, I went, yes. <laughs> really? I thought they were pretty good. I said, well, I've got extra tracks. We're going to sing them again now that we know who you are. Uh-huh. But there's been so many, over the career, there's been so many artists that I've never been able to get to be them because it's, it happens and sometimes it doesn't. Right. And when and, it happened with her, was it just like, it was like yeah, it shocked, gangbusters? It, yeah, it shocked her. Uh-huh. And she goes, some, some like, well, that's how I sound in the shower. I said, well, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, when it comes down to it, Steve, on your fingers and your toes, you can pretty much count all the stylist, vocalist, yeah, right. you know? Then everybody copies. Yep. What I wanted to do was to make her unique. So within the first te- 15 seconds... Or the first couple of lines of the verse of the, you know, when the song starts, people identify and go, oh, I know who that is. Yeah. Right now in pop music, it's kind of hard, especially yeah. in country music, because there's six producers, 15 engineers, and maybe 20 musicians that are playing on all the records. So right. why does everything sound alike? Right. I uh, wonder why. What made you want to put that effort in with her, though? Like you could tell, obviously. Well, she was young enough. She was young enough. And um, no different than doing the the drills on the fiddle. Okay. Like her doing her long bows and her vibratos yeah. and, and doing her scales or anything. Did the yeah. same thing with her vocal. Was she expecting that from you as a producer? No. Uh-uh. She, she just thought you'd make no, a record. No, and, and I think I kind of pissed her off because she thought she was going to go right in and do a, studio, a, yeah. a session. I said, well, no. You're not ready. And you're not ready. Uh-huh. What do you mean I'm not ready? I've already made an album. I want, yeah, I heard it. Yeah. 
<laughs> what do you mean by that, Ben? I went, well, I think, I think we can do better. Uh-huh. When we were mixing that album, I'll never forget. Which album is this? Two Highways. Okay. That's the one that took her to the Grammys. I said, hey, Allison, you got a dress? She goes, yeah, I got a dress. What a dress has got to do with it? Well, you've always wore blue jeans and, you know, shorts and stuff at the session. What the hell has the dress got to do with it? I said, well, I think you're going to need a dress to go to the Grammy Awards. And I never said this before uh-huh. on any artist, even really? though I've had many up before that time, fortunately. Yeah. yeah. I said, the album that we're mixing today, it's gonna, you're going to go to the Grammys. And then when we're sitting there, Paul McCartney does the opening, you know, comes out and does the opening song. And she goes, hey, Ben, will you pinch me? And I went, yeah, okay. Oh, this she is goes, at the Grammys? At the yeah. Grammys. She goes, we're really here. How did you know? <laughs> I said, the hair went up on the back of my neck, and every time that does that, it means it's a Grammy. So what was the Grammy in the first one? What category was it in? A bluegrass. Oh, there was a bluegrass category back then. Yeah, and I had three. That that year, I had nine things up in really? like four or five <laughs> different categories. Yeah. yeah. The Doc Watsons and right. a bunch of other stuff. That first Allison record that you did... It did well, like it did well. It yeah. it was um, it established like, it, it, her right, but it didn't sell a gazillion copies. No, that the was next the next the one, next one the next one did right um, because of the publicity. I mean, we were limited to the bluegrass marketplace right. buyers, you know. Yeah. Now on, I've got that old feeling. We had drums on it, uh-huh. some songs, and we had piano on it. Yeah, which is totally out of the norm. But what I was trying to do, to cause was acoustic country music. Uh-huh. I, I saw that there was a, there could be a market with Allison. We had to reach a larger demographic because uh-huh. Bluegrass didn't have a market share. Right. Country music had a market share uh-huh. that could get advertisers. Yeah. So, I mean, looking at music as a business, moving her into country, but still holding her Bluegrass roots. That's tricky. Yeah, and and fortunately, it worked. You know, we had hired this publicist, and I had had an old friend that I went to high school with that wrote, uh, um, uh, she was one of the editors for Junior Scholastic and Senior Scholastic, which are little newspapers that go around every month to kids in elementary school, mm-hmm. and junior high, and high school. And I had her write an article about a girl by the name of Allison Krauss, go mm-hmm. along with this marketing plan. Mm-hmm. She went along with it about a girl that was a teenager that was up mm-hmm. at the Grammys. Well, that helped program that whole base of kids that were getting their allowances to buy records. Really? Yeah. So um, all over the United States. Yeah. So when that album, it was part of the, all the marketing plan. Uh-huh. You know, try to get, if you get them from the, the cradle, you yeah. got them to the grave. Right. Okay. If they're real long term. Long term. Yeah. So um, the first re- report, you know, the review came out um, from Bluegrass Unlimited and they slammed the album. <laughs> and I'll forget, Ken Irwin called me. Jury lived down at the road and I went down to visit him. And he goes, Bill, you know, Bluegrass Unlimited slammed it. And I went, Yeah, let's see what the, the pop trees yeah. say. What do you mean? <clears throat> oh, I said, well, I got the publicist sending the album over to Europe, Mojo mm-hmm. Magazine. I mean, all the all the mainstream mainstream stuff, mm-hmm. and Rolling Stone. He goes, "What Rolling Stone? They're not going to review a progress thing." Well, Ken Irwin called me, and he 
pretty much told me that I had wasted $12,500 <laughs> <laughs> on the album in marketing and promotion and everything. Yeah. You know? And I said, well, let's wait and see what Rolling Stone has to say. Rolling Stone? What in the hell are you talking about? Two days later, Rolling Stone came out. Oh, and they had a big review of it. They had a big, and they loved no it. No kidding. They loved it. Wow. And I'll never forget the guitar player. I won't mention his name. But we're at the Grammy Awards for that album. Uh-huh. And he goes, well, why did you pick those songs? Uh-huh. I said, look at her age. Look at her market. Guys don't buy records. Girls do. Uh-huh. And all the, most of the songs were about how a young girl thinks. And, and what was the process of finding those songs for Allison? Oh, gosh, I, I sat you, in a lot of offices. You did? You just yeah. went through it's song like after next, song It's like this song. coming week, and I'm going to be at three major, the three big publishing companies, uh-huh. going through their old catalog for the Price Sisters. Uh, do you still write songs yeah, these days? sure. You I do? was working on one yesterday. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. cool. And uh, what's what's the latest thing for you? Last time I saw you, you were, you were working on that Ralph Stanley record, I know. Um, yeah. That's... Uh, uh, the Dillers' new album with Don Henley and Bernie Leiden from the Eagles. And, oh, really? And Herb Peterson. Oh, wicked. Um, Ricky Skaggs is on it. Sam Bush is on it. Yeah. Um, Rodney Dillard of the Dillards. <clears throat> you know, I mean, they signed with uh, Electro Records in 1963, and they were the darlings on the Andy Griffith Show. So pretty yeah. much the generations grew up on the Andy Griffith Show and saw yeah. the Dillards. And they opened up for all the big, they had big, big, big albums. Mm-hmm. And they opened up for Delton Johns and a mm-hmm. bunch of major acts all over the world. What about like with a band like Earls of Leicester that's way more recent um, and is a, like a really modern and awesome sounding record, but it's definitely like calling back to the traditional bluegrass of of the classic recordings. How did you approach doing a record like that? Like was was trying to get an element of the classic sound in there part of the concept or was it more just like, let's make this sound as modern and awesome as we can, but we're going to play older kind of material? Well, some of the guys wanted it to sound authentic and sure we could have done that and they could have gathered around one microphone, but it wouldn't have had, I don't think the appeal for the next generation. Cause the, the generation that's listening to the Earls of Leicester is the new generation. They don't know really who Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs was.
in approaching that, um, we got to record that in Oceanway A, um, the big room, which had been yeah. my classroom for 12 years at Belmont. Um, right, you knew so it well. I knew it well. So what we did is Barry came in the night before, and we found out where the bass sounded the best in the room, mm -hmm. and then I set up around that. Because okay. once you have a really good solid low end, that's you're that's halfway a, there. Yeah, well, yeah. And then I did set up where everybody was standing, and they performed it like they would live. Um, okay. A, a couple of weeks before, DTS asked me to listen to some no, new headphones because they were going to start doing broadcasting and movies in 11.1 or something. So I set up a lot of different mics just in case um, one of the soundtracks from the album was going to go into a movie so that I would have all those different mics there for the positioning of the speakers. But oh, okay, in, cool. yeah, in most cases, I didn't use that because when the guys walked in, they went, holy hell, Bill, what are all these microphones? I said, well, <laughs> they're set up if we're going to, you know, 5-1-7-1-11-1. And they kind of looked at me like, what are you talking about? But I was prepared just in case because in a digital recording, tracks are cheap. Was that done, like, were you using stereo uh, miking techniques on all those instruments on that record? No. On those, okay. no. Um, I was using monos, but we had a, a decatree yeah. sitting up above everybody, and then I had um, stereo ribbons in front of the whole group so that I had a group oh, sound cool. that yeah. I, could, I could cause if I wanted to, and then... Sean was singing into one of my 47s, and then I had mm -hmm. um, I had one of my Sankin mics on him. But I did have um, an XY in front of him, so if he moved around, I, I would have hopefully what I needed, you know. Sing one song for me. And, and all live, pretty much? Like, you you weren't overdubbing vocals on no. that record, right? Uh-uh. Yeah. No, everything went down live. And what about effects and stuff like that on 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 these uh, acoustic records? Like, they don't sound overly processed or anything, but it, but there's some there's some reverb and things like that. Are you relying on the room for that, or are you adding reverb? In, or In the case of the Earls, I used the room. Okay. I had mics set up so I could also pick up that ambience and use that. Right. No different than yeah. when you're doing drums in a big room, setting mics around, yeah. you know, that you can bring right. up for a drum solo or, you know, yeah. whatever, you know. It helps having a great sounding room, too. Yeah. What about on, on, say, Drive or something like that? Were you adding artificial reverb to those records? Because they were done, like, in, in houses and, well, yeah, and at less than ideal situations? Well, Drive was done at the old Sound Connection before it became Music Row Audio. Okay. And Inroads was done there too. Deviation uh -huh. was done at the studio that I built 
on 16th, which is now Curb Studio. Curb. Um, okay. And the duet with Egger was done there at the Curb mm-hmm. Studio. Back then we had plates, yep. and I and I would slap the and delay and EQ the signal going into the plates, and then on the returns, EQ them. So mm-hmm. I usually had two plates going, and um, oh, cool! Some delays. And and would you reverberate like the entire group as one kind of send, or would or were you doing different instruments to different levels of of reverb? <clears throat> well, the plates are set. So yeah, um, if if there was any percussion or anything, that would be normally on one plate, and then um, the instruments would be on another, and then the vocal, you know, would be on probably a mono plate. One more question for you, uh, like from just strictly from your point of view, from your end of things, is there is there one of those records in particular that you feel like was really your strongest work as an engineer where things like really came together and you listen back to it? And uh, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of those records, you know, they all sound amazing, but but I'm guessing there might be one or two for you that really stand out as being like exceptionally well done from your end of things. In the case of Bela, you know, pretty much all of them, the same with Jerry or Mark O'Connor. Um, yeah. Drive seems to be that and inroads. Um, uh-huh. But when you buy buy the vinyl, because the yeah. vinyl sounds so much better, the albums, those rounder albums that were transferred don't sound right because ah, the curve's okay. not so there, that- see? It sounds really... Thin. Um, uh-huh. Now, Drive was redone. There's a um, an SACD version yeah. of that where they actually took the half inch tape and yeah. transferred that you, it. That you mixed. Yeah, that so I you, mixed. You, you mixed a half inch. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and you can really tell the difference. It's not so. Like, so the ultimate the ultimate version of that really is the vinyl version for any for any uh, audio nerds. Yeah, or there, or the, get the, the SACD one. Because both all those guys were sidemen at that point, you know, they were close friends. They jammed, they all lived around each other, and they played together so much. It, later, it started to get a little bit sterile, maybe. And sterile's not the word. Uh-huh. It just they, didn't have that exciting edge that's there on that record. You, it, it, yeah, they were having fun during Inroads and Drive. Yeah, you can tell, man. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And it was just fun being there to, you know, try and capture it. The main thing for people that are listening to this, they need to have fun. They do. Yeah. That needs to be there. Always. Yes, always. Well, enjoy this, Steve. Thanks, Bill. Sure. All right, folks. Thanks so much for listening. That was my conversation with Bill Borndick here in Nashville, Tennessee. Hope you enjoyed it. I had a blast making it. I look forward to seeing you next week when we bring you another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. 
Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing. 